Welcome to the Mockingcast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your host, and we come to you every Friday to discuss, among other things, the contents of our weekly wrap-up post, Another Week Ends, which is sort of like our Christian Cosmopolitan's grace-infused guide to the contents of the interwebs as we see them for the week. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by one of the usual suspects this week to discuss the contents of Another Weekend's, the one, the only Sarah Condon. David Zoll, however, is not with us this week. He is in Oklahoma City for the Mockingbird Conference out there. If you're anywhere near Oklahoma City, go to emberdokc2016.com, get the details, and get there. It is free. You can't beat the price. Free as God's grace. But before we get to the contents of another weekend's, I had the distinct privilege of sitting down this week with Zach Hicks, who is the canon for worship and liturgy at Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, and wrote a great book just published called The Worship Pastor. I enjoyed the book and the conversation immensely. I hope you do too. Zach, welcome to the Mocking Cast. Thank you. So glad to be here. I, f- I feel like we, we just spent some time talking. We, we've met once before in New York. I was, it was my first Mockingbird conference. I think you were, you, there was a group of us, like Sally LaJones was there. Yes. Oh, yes, totally. Yep. We talked a little about the organ. I don't make as much of a lasting impression as you, but <laughs> I think we were talking about Dead Mouse. Oh, we were? Holy cow. Yeah. Wow. I think yeah. we were talking about yeah. EDM and Dead Mouse. And yeah. you were saying that like people, when you were in Florida, that people would want to see the organ played and you were playing it differently than they thought it would be played. Right. Yeah. People would make pilgrimages to the, to the organ mecca of Coral Ridge and kind of be disappointed that we were, uh, you know, profaning its holiness by melding it with what we were doing with some of our rock stuff. Um, not that we weren't pulling out the stops and playing classical stuff as well, but just partnering it with the world's music felt a little odd to that kind of subculture. Yeah, it's funny though. These are like Presbyterians, right? Uh, n- yes, and just organ enthusiasts of all okay. kinds. Because I mean, the footprint and the the influence of Diane Bish, who was the one that made that organ famous and built it, uh, is pretty large because she was she was a pop she popularized the organ for a new generation of organ players and had shows and just you know evangelized the organ. So people would come both because of the Diane Bish lore and because it was just a really expensive, really nice, wonderfully tuned to the room organ. The Diane Bish lore. Yeah. Was she like a werewolf by night? Or what, was, <laughs> what was the lore? Yeah. What, I, I, what is the lore? Just, like, what just famous and, uh, you know, flamboyant, charismatic personality, someone who really made the organ great again. <laughs> Making the organ great again. Yeah. Now you're you're now at the church the Church of the Advent, right? In yes. Birmingham, oh, so blessed to be here. Love it. My friend Rich Lusk is down there, and he's at Peter Lightheart's old church. I think Peter's there too at the Theophilus Institute. But I heard that is like one of, if not the most churched zip code in the country. Oh man, it's a it's a really churchy culture, and all the trappings of it. You know, it's just got some of that Christ haunted South business going on. But there's enough. Of of the change in culture where you're just, I'm meeting a ton of people downtown. 
town who are the types of folks that uh, have just been burned by kind of the 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 church that's telling them to do more and try harder and and, and not responding favorably to any church. And so you're, we're watching it change before our eyes. And it's kind of a unique moment for, I think, Advent to be trying to preach the gospel and attempting to do it without the hangups. I have a friend who a couple of years ago moved down south and she said that what's interesting on Wednesday nights, there's like no cars at the bars and restaurants. They're not at church, but they yeah. also don't want to be seen. But they were like, hey, it's church night. So like we don't necessarily <laughs> want to be seen out, but <laughs> right. we're not going to church either. So it's yeah, you're right, right, exactly. Uh, yes, I, exactly. There's there's still that mystique where everyone wants to say we go to church, whether we really do or not. It's sort of the appropriate thing to say down here. Now, you've written a book, The Worship Pastor, A Call to Ministry for Worship Leaders and Teens. We've got some big endorsements. We've got Brian Chappell. We've got Stephen Vicky Cook. We've got Scotty Ward-Smith, John Whitflit, who is at the Calvin Worship Center. Big endorsement. You didn't ask me. I would have written one, but I'll forgive you. Oh, well. This is a great book. Uh, and you know, I feel like this is going to be a weird thing to say, but I feel like there's a dearth of this kind of literature in worship pastor circles? Maybe that's a stereotype. No, it's I, it's true. It's why I wrote it. Um, I remember thinking or hearing Tim Keller once say, no one should write a book before they're 50. And I really took that to heart as I was, as sort of God was birthing this book in my heart. And I just figured, I'll write that later if it's still relevant. And I just had a real, almost charismatically tinged conversation with someone who said, this book needs to be written now because it's for time. It's for a particular time. And what's being said is not being said in a lot of places, or at least the way I'm synthesizing what's being said is not synthesized in this way. So yeah, it feels uh, it feels timely. It feels right for now. I do feel like it's filling a gap and bringing some conversations together. We've got Nietzsche. We've got Schmemann. <laughs> yeah. Charles Taylor in this. I mean, you're hitting all my literary erogenous zones here many 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 more i mean this is that i this is a really substantive book and it's a kind of work of contextual theology in its own right i mean like it's kind of you know there's bart says that you know there's irregular dogmatics like mm. athanasius on the incarnation or, or or the kind of stuff luther did and there's regular dogmatics which is more like what calvin does in the institutes or totally something you know like schleiermacher's christian faith but bart says you know the foundation of regular dogmatics is is, is always irregular dogmatics it's always the yep. the people God calls to reflect on something pressing at the time. And this is like a piece of irregular dogmatics yeah. in one way, right? Yeah. It's, a, it's a theology that's from above on one level, but on the ground Well, thank you. Another. Yeah, thank you for noticing that because it really was, it was attempting to apply and think through uh, these broad theological categories for the sake of the vocation of the worship leader that just sort of uh, fills evangelical churches and, and non-evangelical churches across the United States and across the world. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I, I do describe it, uh, and I'm happy to do this, especially on the mocking cast. Oh my gosh, I'm here talking with you. Uh, happy to that, say that in 50 cents, we'll get you like, <laughs> you know, a soda like 20 years ago. So grateful. Yeah. I, I am unashamed in saying that it is, it is uh, a covert tract for processing worship through the lens of law gospel theology and a law gospel outlook. And I try to tease that out in ways that aren't uh, law gospel jargon heavy for the sake of the audience that I'm trying to dialogue with, which is a lot of people who have never heard the terms or even care to think in those categories. Uh, and so, yeah, I'm trying to weave and bring a lot together, but in a digestible form and in a way that, that is compelling and uh, curable in a variety of, of contexts. 
So, like, as as I want to get, I want to get into the specifics of the book in a minute, but I want to ask you: There's a book that I've been influenced by called "The Lord's Service" by mm, Jeff Myers, mm-hmm. the Grace of Covenant and Real Worship. In the beginning of that book, you know, the, do you know the book? You know I know of worship? it, and yeah, I've read articles, but I haven't read that book. But I, I do yeah. know of it. You're like one of the only people that like would hear, has heard of these guys. Okay. Yeah. So in in it, they talk about as they're trying to sort of get a handle on what worship is, because it's one of those things that everybody talks about, like oh, worship worship, you know, we're thrown around all the time. But when they're thinking about what Christians at least gathered together on Sundays, they say, you know, what is it? Is it, is worship evangelism? Is it, is it, um, you know, technique? Is it uh, about education? Is it about experience? Is it praise, exaltation? And they have all these kind of, kind of questions. And in general, they're writing for an evangelical audience and thinking about these are things evangelical Protestants would say. So if you were, if you were giving voice to like what worship is, at least gathered worship, what do you and you have a nice thing in the book where you talk about our, our you know how we're all worshipers and then there's christian worship and then there's christian gathered worship on sunday so right a right circular diagram you're good with the graphs in this book oh well thanks I'm, i had a good designer you should have just taken credit for <laughs> should be like, like it's amazing what you can do yeah right it is, so it is what is like how do you understand what you're doing with the, the church gathered on sundays you know both you as a worship leader and and and, and pastor and then everybody there you know phenomenologically what's going on totally well i mean i i do try to come at worship from this sort of cosmic apocalyptic perspective about what worship is and does and uh, i i really am enough of a charismatic to believe that worship is i love the metaphor of worship as a is a, a embassy of heaven, an outpost of heaven, where we we see standing on national earthly soil, and we're standing on on heavenly ground, and somehow, like the theologian Jean Jacques von Allman calls it, worship is the place where the future puts forth its buds in the present. You know, where mm. the Church of God gets to try on her bridal garments, and uh, I I describe in the book how worship is. For sci-fi lovers, like a wormhole where uh, we short circuit the distance between the already and the not yet for an experiential moment where God comes to meet his people and displays the end, heaven, future, the eschaton before them uh, through his grace and through his gospel. And that's experienced in those ordinary means of creaturely preaching and sacraments and yes, singing. Uh, And so with a broad, I really think that when I'm planning and leading worship services, I am helping facilitate that divine human encounter through Christ. And I, and that's why I, I talk about worship leaders need to think pastorally about it because the stakes are high. And this is a really important event that reverberates and starts to spread out to the rest of the earth and push out in mission. So it's, I think it's, I think it's the center of human existence. Worship services are the center. And I'm sure not everybody agrees with me. And I don't think it's the only thing. And I'm not saying that's the only thing that's important, you know, but I am saying, that there's something here that happens that's unique that is uh, the at the core part of who we are and how how we're designed and how God made us and and the in Christness of all that stuff is is the lifeblood. I mean, I do love Shmeiman's just 
vision that worship is for the life of the world, you know, and uh, what happens there is for the life of the world. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that I like that you do is you talk about, again, in that one section towards the end of the book where you're graphing out, you know, how all humans are worshipers. I mean, it's, if my, I have a personal philosophy. If Augustine and Nietzsche agree on anything, it must be right. Like, whatever the <laughs> I love but, that. You know, like, if I know what you think, I might know something about you, assuming that you're exercising a little bit of candor, which is rare anyway. But if I know what you want mm, i know you yeah. yeah if we're creatures of the will and so in some sense it seems like you're saying look worship whether it's explicit in a religious context or implicit through pursuit of wealth or sex or adulation yep. or security that it's it's externalized uh, embodiment of desire yeah desire driven anthropology i just i believe in it because it defines me it it exposes the way i live in existence and it's been that's why you know james k A. smith charles taylor those guys have been really helpful in me processing the importance of my job as someone who plans and leads worship services because I realize we're in the realm of the affective when we do these things. We're in the realm of the core of the way human beings feel and operate and think and justify themselves. You know, we're at that place. And so it's a it's a sensitive and powerful place, which makes sense why there's so many fights about it. Have you ever like led worship with a smoke machine? <laughs> I, yes, uh, I, I've been in context where smoke machines and haze haze has been used and lights. I've been in everything, man. I've, I've experienced it all and led in those contexts and processed theologically those things and uh, lamented those things, all of the above. I would have been a worship leader. The only thing, or maybe a musician, the only thing I lack is talent. But I feel like I have some flamboyance for it. But Definitely. that is always like, I've always felt like just once I'd like to lead like singing or something with with a smoke machine. Dang. Like it's, it's it is apocalyptic to some degree. Well, yeah, and people really, people tease it and I get it. Yeah, it's just, you know, appropriation of cultures, rock show practices. At the same time, I think there's something too with smoke machines and lights is sort of like our day, our day and ages version of uh, incense and stained glass. You know, they, there's at least an overlap in the way they function in a worship service for people who aren't just experiencing a rock show, but really feel like they're coming to encounter the presence of God. Those things get, I, I know it sounds cheesy to some, and some people don't buy it, but I, I really feel like for the people that buy into how those things can affectively help them, <laughs> that it served a very similar function to what uh, those older things I mentioned served for the church of yesteryear. No, oh, I think, yeah, I mean, you go to a Springsteen show and it, it feels like a religious revival. Totally. I mean, that big totally. Smoke machines. But there's other affective yep, yep. things. Yeah. And given, think- given the affective anthropology, I believe it. I believe that that stuff does affect us and draw us in and do things to our, our core and the way we think and feel about those moments. One of the things you have like several like subheadings. It's one of the things that's great about the way the book is organized because you have all these roles like worship pastors, church lover, worship pastors, corporate mystic. But one of my favorites, doxological philosopher. And in one, you have the worship pastors, artist chaplain. But then you kind of say, like, look, first of all, let me tell you, worship pastors, you are artists. Like, right. Like, just accept it. Do you feel like you talk a lot about con- contextualization of, of music forms? And, it, yeah, I was listening. We were just talking about earlier. Like, I was listening to the Stern interview with Lady Gaga. And I mm. find part of her as an artist is her identity, which is kind of out there. I mean, I mm-hmm. think there are forms of celebrity identity that see, you know, Merton talks about like seeing yourself versus being yourself. Like if I'm seeing myself while I'm talking with you, I'm thinking, oh, who am I? Who mm-hmm. do you think I am? Mm-hmm. Or versus being myself. But I do feel like some artists in celebrity, even in celebrity context, seem to be 
at least as much of yourself as you can be at that level. So is right. there like a conundrum for a worship pastor? Because in some level, if you're doing an art form where so much yes. of, of you is reification of your persona, yes. putting it out there, but then the, the church says, well, you should like never do that. It's all God. Right. God right. It's all glory. glory God. When, when some of it is you, or like some of it right. is your, you're, you know, if, if I play, you know, the same piece of music through a trumpet or, or a xylophone, you know, or a tube, they're going to sound different. Like so right. something about the instrument. So is that, how do you deal with that? Like the fact that, that people become celebrity-ish as, as figures in worship music. And is that all bad? Right. Well, certainly we have co-opted all kinds of idolatrous uh, trappings and hangups from the, the rock and roll celebrity culture in the way we think of worship leaders today. Certainly. At the same time, yeah, I feel like there's something to what you're saying about they're just, they're just being attention. And I find solace in, in the way that uh, Luther sort of gives me a grounding for being, being free to be myself in the gospel and letting that just sort of come out and not being afraid, therefore, of, of having to either manufacture a persona or hide a persona. And that maybe, just maybe, uh, the way I lead a liturgy or the way I lead music as a particular creature whom God has set up with my DNA and my affective dispositions, if I lead sort of authentically from who I am, that somehow uh, the, the plumbing, the depths of myself will resonate with someone else's depths. You know, I can't remember what the Jack Kerouac quote was that my friend John O'Linebaugh keeps throwing at me, which is marvelous. But uh, Jack Kerouac said something like fish deep, fish deep into yourself. And uh, the result of that, and he was saying that as instructions for poets, like if you don't try to do something that pleases someone else, but when you fish deep, which sounds like a very sort of self-serving celebrity making type of comment. But I think what he was saying is the more you plumb the depths of your own self, the more you actually find true resonance with others. And I think there's something to that in the way of me being myself in front of others as a worship leader is helpful. And I wouldn't want to take that away, even as there are all kinds of problems with the rock star culture. Yeah, it's just like Kerouac saying, like, pay attention to your inner monologue or dialogue. Right, right. So, so, so the, yeah, so you're saying, like, celebrity doesn't negate the possibility of communication. Totally, yeah. And I, I guess the proof is in the fact that there are some celebrities out there that I just feel like move and grip my soul in their celebrityism, and I can't deny it. I stare at them, and they speak to me, and they tell me about myself. Yeah, because you look at, like, you know, some people would say that, again, this is controversial, but, you know, the... Roman Catholicism's development of sainthood is a way to sort of sanctify or baptize polytheism mm. in, 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 in a because really what what is polytheism about right it's about you know some people really have transcendent experiences on a boat by the by the water so it's Poseidon or whatever some of it it's it's right walking around you know in the woods so it's Artemis or some of it it's through romantic love and that's Aphrodite and so you're so it, like is there like a redemptive mode for something about artists who are, you know, writ large in some way, but actually touching something through their yes. monologue that's universal in human experience. Well, and I think that where that where we can sort of be theologically abstract about the non-abstracting theologian Luther is to say that God's in the business of uh, pursuing and killing us in order to make us alive. Every single human being is in this is in this struggle. And so whether or not we voice it theologically like that, it's happening. And when you plumb the depths of that, you find God through his word working, you know? And so it's an incredibly powerful and freeing thing that helps to maybe strip the sacred secular divide and just, just sort of see the world as a place where the word of God is doing its work, you know, D capital W word, Jesus 
by his spirit is doing this work in people and, and therefore makes us more able and better listeners without being manipulators of others or having to sort of judge and critique and put people in boxes. I love that. You, you mentioned Luther there and you've said a couple of times thinking about this law gospel dynamic where which tends to be people that tend to buy into that theology that's of which I'm one that see you know the law is demand is saying you know making demands and the gospel saying done tend to be a little spurious about religious practice about talking about practices mm-hmm. about thinking about you know they tend to be lower church uh, or if they're in liturgical settings they tend to kind of like liturgical things seem like trappings or you know we kind of have to so how do you as someone who is a student and lover of liturgy a yeah. student and lover of music not like have a grace infused approach to these practices so they don't become the worst form of objectification of religiosity. And totally, totally. Like well, interestingly, that is my present burden at Cathedral Church of the Advent, who's, you know, we're a tradition that has been using the same prayer book for X number of years, right? And the question is I'm teaching a Sunday school class right now where I'm encouraging our folks to listen for the voice that kills and makes alive and receive it in the liturgy, you know, listen for these. And so we're walking through a liturgy and we're kind of exegeting it in, in hopes that it will actually make the experience of it more real, where instead of just praying this prayer of confession of sin, I feel like God's pinning my flesh to the wall, you know, or is is uh, is burying the old Adam yet again, who's rising up from the ashes and trying to cry out, look at me, you know, uh, and trying to get those those experiential things to mean something. And yeah, it's, it is a bit harder because people in liturgical traditions don't necessarily a- approach worship and say, I'm, I'm going to experience and encounter God here. And that's where the, that's where, that's why I say, listen to the charismatics because the, at least one thing of many that they have right is the principal thing, which is when I, when I come to worship, God is going to do something to me and at me. And I think the law gospel perspective is that God, God's, you know, plan here is to kill me and make me alive again and raise up the new Adam and point me to Christ and cause me to look outside myself and see Jesus yet again, hanging on a cross for my salvation. You know, and I, I just, when you can talk like that, it does stir hearts and people are like, oh, I've never thought of the fact that when I say almighty God, to whom all hearts are open, that my heart, I, I mean, like, my heart is being filleted open right now. I, I should, in some sense, when I encounter God, feel like I, I am being dismembered. You know, the Word of God is living and active and cuts cuts bones and joints apart. I'm a, I become like this this dead sacrifice before Jesus comes and makes me alive again. So your image for God is Ramsey Snow. I don't know. <laughs> yes, sure. Yeah, the flare. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, I'm surprised Actually, no one's no one's written a worship song about that. Right. I, I have the image of no one watches this show, but I watch Viking. Kings. Oh, I love that. And there was this practice called the uh, eagle or something. Oh, god. What, what is that called? It's yeah, yeah, brutal. They, they split. Yeah, it's awful. It's, but uh, I, I, I probably will never invoke that image with uh, our conservative flock here who probably doesn't watch Vikings or think about these kinds of pagan thoughts. But if you want to talk about filleting and Cranmer's maybe intent in why he put that prayer there, that's the image I have. <laughs> so That's a great show, by the yeah. way. I mean, I think, especially like the paganism there is so, it, it's a great window on. Right. Transcendence in in true paganism, you know, totally. when you're thinking about about a polytheistic kind of framework, which is reified, you know, part uh, us, part nature, and the it's great. I yep. love that. Yep. Oh, nice. Wow. Well, we'll talk about that some other time. This is exactly. This is we can do a whole <laughs> podcast on a Vikings recap. Uh, yeah. I mean, you um. You have a conservatory education, right? Yes. 
Yeah, study music in a classical conservatory at Biola University uh, in LA. Biola is the name of a college that should seem weird, but it's around. It's right. Around, it seems normal. Like most people don't know. I think it's Bible Institute of Los Angeles. Right. But it's not Biola. Like, how do you Loyola. know all this stuff, man? How do you See, seriously? I am. I am. I am a. I have too much time on my hands, and I'm weird. You obviously remember everything you see, read, Uh, or listen to. I don't remember the important things. I just (laughs) ask ask my wife. I just remember trivia. Like no, but I think you know. I remember hearing Zachary Quinto, who was also conservatory oratorio at CMU, like as an actor. And Howard Stern asked him, "Do you would you do that again?" And he said, "No, not now, because with reality TV and YouTube, like everybody is sort of you know you spend all this time perfecting a craft and people and learn to become good actors." And maybe even good musicians, you know, like someone like Kelly Clarkson or someone is plucked. It. Like, is that having? Do you ever like regret that? Like, like, hey, maybe I could have come up in a way that is less arduous. Uh, good question. No, I, I think of nothing uh, of my education, but with just great appreciation and fondness. It was it was classical. I was singing opera and art songs, and uh, you know, I therefore. I'll, it's been very practical for me because I've always been in churches that are straddling this kind of classical and modern music making fusion or thinking through the transition. Uh, and I'm someone who appreciates both. And so even going through it, I never found it arduous. I found it life-giving and uh, new and fresh. And actually my whole love for liturgy and hymns and old things came through studying music history. Uh, Cause I was just a typical evangelical thinking about, you know, win the loss at any cost. And now, now is the moment of when God does stuff and don't pay attention attention to anything in the past and music history opened all that up for me. And it was really through music that I probably came at all these things that I love and am a part of now. So music was in some ways like an intellectual and affective conversion for you. Definitely. Definitely. It led me to some roads I never would have gone on apart from it. Did you meet your wife in college? I did. She was a, a tennis playing Jacques, you know, would walk around with the, the tan people. And I was the pale emaciated music nerd that would walk out of the building and the jocks would walk by and, you know, the puddle, it would splash in my face and I just kind of traipse along and eat really, you know, fried food in the cafeteria and then go back and we weren't supposed to meet except we were on a mission trip together and the, the rest is history. I pursued You her. were winning the loss at any cost and <laughs> then all of a sudden it was a little distraction. Yes, there was. There was, definitely. Was she digging? Did you like sort of do the John Mayer thing, just pull out a guitar and like just sit like, oh gosh, it's so tired. Of this. Where was the mission trip? Okay, so listen to this awesome evangelical love story. We go on a mission trip to Honduras. We're in a rural village and uh, we're we're staying with the villagers in their homes and so it's You're it's roughing like, it. You're, we're roughing, you're roughing it. it. And so I'm yeah. seeing her true colors, which is just totally impressing me and making me fall in love with her more. And one night, evidently, she got stung in the back four times by a scorpion and had to jump wow. up and, and uh, her back swelled up. And I mean, we were 12 hours from any type of medicine. And so she was getting a fever and all that stuff. So her prescription from the villagers was go sit by the river and lay in this hammock. And so she did that. And I was like, I, you know, as a good Christian evangelical man, I'm going to go down by the river with my guitar and sing some praise songs. So I think I sang like shout to the Lord or something like that. And you she sang, just, yep. you sang oh, yeah. shout to the Lord. Yeah, yeah. No, no, like Van Morrison or anything. No, I wasn't shout getting that. Shout to yeah. the Lord. Uh, definitely. Wow. Yeah, I know. So, yep, yep, definitely. So, and uh, she, I don't know if that was uh, compelling or repulsive, but somehow I made it through that painful moment in our lives. 
Wow. Shout to the Lord. What yeah. else did you, do you remember any other songs? No, I don't, I don't, I don't know. So, so in some sense, like she's, she's known you before you like got involved in worship culture and, and were established musician and stuff like that. Definitely. She, we, we walked life together. I mean, we got married at 21. So we, we grew up with one another and went through tragedies together. And, uh, I just, I love our journey. What is it like worst cheesiest evangelical worship song that you still love that you're like all right i still love it i love it i can't get you know like i love it i wish you could play it like at least twice a month Uh, i I don't know if i'd say if there's an old cheesy song that i wish i could play um i recently was uh in in conversation with and at an event with paul balash who's famous and kind of his breakout song was open the eyes of my heart and uh, and now that i'm sort of affectively driven and cranmarian in my approach i find more benefit in hearing that song again it's like open the eyes of my heart i want i want to see you you know and it's uh uh you know reform folks will say that's a terrifying thing to want to see god don't ever ask for that but uh just thinking through the it it sounds like a sort of worship song version of the collect for purity of almighty god our hearts are open you know and and so i've been thinking about that song recently going probably will never lead it but Good song, like good song, helpful. I was hoping you would say like "Shine, Jesus." Shine. <laughs> no, man, uh, no, I don't. Although statistically, of that era of songs, it was one of the only one with any overt Trinitarian theology. How's that for some trivia? And it's simply <laughs> because it has the the names of the three persons in them, not because it develops any sort of yeah. Shine, Jesus, <laughs> shine, fill this land with the Father's glory, blaze, Spirit, blaze. So. You know, I like that. Yeah. I mean, there you go. I there mean, you that's go. for the, for the era. I mean, that's yeah, it's, it's pretty good. Bro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. So I'm like, you know, when you think about one of the things I think that for most, I would say most Christians of any stripe, they couldn't tell you the story of what happens in corporate worship. Like, mm. the, the, you know, like well, what just happened. I mean, I remember. I think I was at a vineyard church once and it's lovely church lovely people but like we kind of sang then there was a prayer for the city and we took communion and then there was a sermon and like some kind of song at the end and i just like i mean they're very talented musicians and the prayers were you know whatever there were there was there was some heartfelt stuff but i thought i don't know what i experienced and why like Mm. um Mm. So I really like you say, you know, you could look at the worship narrative is basically an encounter with the glory of God, then the realization of the gravity of our sin. And then that gives way to an appreciation for the grandeur of grace. And then you show how actually that can actually that cycle. It's like a grand narrative of just the gospel story. But right. then it, it kind of repeats, uh, you know, like Mozart, like, <laughs> like it's right. repeating. Totally. All that. Like, yeah, I like that. Yeah, that's uh that was insights largely from um Brian Chapel in his book Christ Centered Worship just said as I look across traditions there's one theme on the way worship is structured not just the content but its structure and it's this theme of of recapitulating the narrative of the gospel in in my own story of, you know, God's glorious, I'm a sinner, but thank God for Jesus, you know, that sort of three three movement section. And I found that really compelling and a bridge of a way to talk to people who are in these kind of charismatic circles that just think about a long block experiential songs. Like how do you how do you be faithful to the Christian tradition? And not lose what you love about about the encounter and your tradition in like a vineyard church or something like that. And I think there's a way forward that honors the tradition of this sort of gospel shaped narrative, but doesn't give up the distinctives of what make other traditions uh, value the way worship goes. And so it's kind of a call to 
to bring it back a little bit, but hopefully without losing whatever distinctives that you think are most valuable. And I don't know if it'll work. I'm anxious. It was kind of cool to receive a review that went to Assemblies of God pastors. Like this was in Assemblies of God magazine, and it was a favorable review of my book. That, that spoke, and, and that was my goal in the book, was to be able to speak to people in that sector, but yet, yet say some convicted things that I felt like need to be said, which is, let's, let's think about the narrative of the gospel, because it is the power of God. It's, it's the only thing that, that really does make us alive. It is what brings the Spirit down. It is what the Spirit longs to spotlight and tell, you know, so, yeah. Yeah, and you do this move, which I really liked, because you could, like, let's say, for we have a lot of Episcopalian listeners, and you say, like, you could see that, like, you know, in the beginning of worship, you have, you know, the opening hymn and readings, you have the glory of God, the gravity of sin uh, in the Kyrie, and the Kyrie, and then the grandeur of grace in the assurance, the, the sermon, the proclamation of the gospel, and then the glory of God again coming into the table. Then, you know, if you have the penitential stuff right. preceding the Eucharist, and then the grandeur again, and it's almost like ascent, it's, a, it's sort of a ascent, descent, higher ascent. Right. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, it's very purposeful. And I do think that Cranmer invented or co- compiled a liturgy that had us go through these cycles of repentance of however you want to call it. And like I was reading a, a scholar talk who said uh, sin, grace, faith or law, gospel, faith or however you describe it. But it or, you know, glory of God, grandeur, sin, gra- uh, gravity of sin, grandeur of grace, though that those cycles just keep on reappearing. And I, I like the metaphor he used of, um, of sonata form or whatever it is that you said, just recapitulation of a theme. I think it's important for the way that repentance gets grounded into our soul uh, in, you know, in an affective way, in a habit forming way. What, what are you listening to right now? Like what's, you know, in your iPhone? You strike me as an iPhone person. Uh, definitely. I am. I'm not an Android. Not, I mean, nothing against Android. <laughs> I'm just saying. It's just, you know, like effectively, you know, I feel like kinship. So what's like, what's going on in your iTunes? What are you popping around? Like, well, you know, lately, I mean, I've been to. listening to this podcast by this uh, DJ guy in South Florida and it's called the Borgor show and it's just a bunch of like really well done dubstep type stuff that just gets me going I just love it uh, so I've been listening to the Borgor show um, listening to latest worship records that are coming out just because I feel like I was starting to stay on top of that and pleasantly surprised for instance by the latest Hillsong record that's probably more theologically deep than anything they've ever done uh, oh wow so yeah yeah that's what's currently on the playlist any like, like pop stuff like what do you, who do you oh. like like you know, you talk about Taylor Swift. I love Taylor Swift. I love Taylor Swift. And talk about like, uh, I don't, did you ever read that article that James K. Smith did on uh, comparing Taylor Swift to Ryan Adams version of 1979? I didn't, but I'll read it as soon as we're done. It's not long, but he just describes how it actually helps to understand the depth of Taylor Swift's music to hear Ryan Adams play. Cause you realize, dang, these lyrics are heavy and deep and rich. And so, yeah, I'm a T Swift fan and probably good. Cause my daughter wants to bop to it and do cartwheels to it all the time. So it makes sense that daddy Zach would start to listen to that tweeny stuff. Zach, you said it all. Uh, your and your book is great, and I, all of our listeners should get this book, "The Worship Pastor: A Call to Ministry for Worship Leaders and Teams," published by Zondervan. It's lovely. Not that you can judge a book by its cover, but it is a lovely cover as well. Simple, ah. elegant, and I really enjoyed it. And I want to recommend it to lots of friends and colleagues. Man, well, thank, so you, thank you so much for the privilege of having me on. And I just honestly, I feel like I'm talking to a man crush celebrity right here when I'm talking to you because you're. I love what you guys do, and I'm so grateful for your podcast. Thank you. I have a face for radio. <laughs> now, thanks. Thanks for coming on. And I really appreciate your work. And I look forward to crossing paths again in the future. Thank you. Appreciate it.
friends, we are here once again on Friday, and we are sans David Zoll, the animating force of the zeitgeist that all is of all things that is our mockingbird. And you know what I say to that, my friends? We don't need no stinking animation. <laughs> we do have actually Sweet UHF book- reference. One of my faves. Exactly. Exactly. We do have actually two people from Houston that work at the same church, but they are not in the same room. They're both at home. Sarah Condon from Houston, Texas. How are you? Good. We're good. Got the kids to school. Always a big deal. And we have RJ Heyman, who works with you. Is he your mm-hmm. superior? RJ, mm-hmm. are, you her, are you above her? Yeah, in yeah, rank? yeah. On the flow chart, he's like way higher than I am. Vastly. Vastly yeah, 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 yeah. Yep. Do you do you need like a telescope just to look up to the rung on the ladder? Mm-hmm. I'm it's not like, even on the same hallway. I mean, she has to look across the courtyard. I do. Interesting fact about Sarah, because she grew up in the deep south, she has a deep affinity for humidity. And so her she has a door that opens onto the courtyard, which is always open, yeah. which led to a squirrel invading her office <laughs> recently, which um I had to chase out. She uh yeah. she came over pretty much in tears. <laughs> and, I, and I came and I came to her rescue. You're, That's you're exactly welcome. what happened. And yeah. when he got there, the squirrel was gone. So very, it was, it was gone. very brave. It was gone. It was very. I was a little scared, though. I'll be honest with you. I didn't tell you this, Sarah, but my wife, my wife actually got bit by a mouse in the middle of the night once. So rodents, rodents do attack. Just so you know. Good lord. So maybe close That's that office door. Yeah. 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 Of course. Haven't you seen every horror movie with? vermin of course they attack that's so i feel like that's so just watch a little hollywood horror and you know that so i was listening to unorthodox this morning which as any listener is one of my favorite podcasts and they have some little mid-roll ad sponsors and they consistently have this ad for harry's razors and mark oppenheimer says you know i like to be smooth and like this morning, he had just broken his finger. And he said, even though I had broken my finger last night, I still with one hand, with one hand shave because I just need to be smooth for my podcast. And that's, I realized like, I, I kind of feel the same way. Like I, sometimes I do the podcast we do it in the morning without showering if I'm doing a bunch of other stuff. But like, I, it's like, I'm not going to do that. I, so I've shaved. I feel clean, like nice. a, a thorough clean shave. So for you, you clearly listeners, don't have children. Yeah. I was like, RJ, exactly. have you showered? Because I for sure <laughs> no, have not. Absolutely not. <laughs> Mark, well... Mark has Mark has four daughters, so that's impressive. If Mark, he's if better, Mark can he's do better it, man than I am, absolutely, they are the chosen people. Mm. You know, uh, so I just for any of our listeners that are tracking this kind of thing, I'm going to announce for you know the next short term future whether I've shaved or not, so we can see if there's any drop in the quality of the podcast if I haven't. Just for like, you know, people that are out there interested in these kind of metrics, there's all sorts of different metrics and this is, this is one. So that being said, with all my neurosis, let's get into the thick of the contents of another week. And RJ, it's lovely to have you with us. It's good to be here. We have a little uh, Texan connection here. I would say you have big shoes to fill, but if, if you were filling in for Sarah, that would probably be true. But with David, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> they're they're at be- they're at best size sevens at best so you know who knows they, this and last week might have been David's last uh, last podcast this might be a regular gig for you so I, I I think that political ads are fascinating like I love political ads and and some of them even there was a candidate who Santaselli or someone here locally and they did this ad and, and I think my wife and I we, he was of the persuasion we were inclined to vote for him and I think we still are but the ad was like. 
Santicelli. This is his kind of cheesesteak. This is Philadelphia area. And they put just a little bit of meat, like, and then all these, like, garnish. And, and there's this steak with no meat, no substance. And it just was so negative. And Lindy and I looked at each other like, it's like he's evil Santa Claus, Santicelli, who peddles, like, lousy cheesesteaks. Who would vote for that jerk? <laughs> so it's like, every time I see his name now, I'm like, wait, wait, can I vote for evil Santa? So... Most of those terribly negative ads that are like, do you know Mitt Romney, Lee spits his gum on the sidewalk, that gum that you stepped on, that could have been Romney's gum. Do you want that guy in the way? You know, I love that so we get the dark. But then we saw a positive ad this week from, of all places, Texas. Yeah. I was so happy it was Texas. I mean, on, that was my first reaction was like, anytime something positive from Texas goes viral, I get really excited because, you know, I'm an adopted uh, Texan. I came from New York and I sort of, I gotta say, living in Houston, Texas, I for the first time, I, I understand and appreciate how people in the quote unquote middle of the country feel when kind of, you know, East Coast, West Coast are kind of constantly talking down about different parts of the country that they've never actually visited. And I include myself in that camp. You know, I, I got down here, I swear. Wait, I wait, there's, there's parts of the country that aren't on the coast? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Although actually Houston oh, is, I, I like to say I live on the third, I live on the South coast now. I'm the third coast. Yeah. Um, but I think I the honestly thought, coast. yeah, so I thought people would all have accents and be wearing hats and I might occasionally see someone like riding their horse down the street. I, I'm, I'm serious. And then I got down here and I was just mortified and embarrassed and realized how provincial I was. So that was, that was my first reaction it was like something awesome, funny and, and light coming out of my new state. And this ad basically features this woman saying, please vote for my husband, because if you don't, he'll be around the house all day. And he's just like, all he's doing is talking policy. Like he's, yeah. you know, like he's arranging the stakes as he's grilling. See if we move the stock car this way and we do this thing. And it's like, so ever like his whole life is basically public policy and tweaking things. He's a total wonk. This is like who maybe you'd want in office, like somebody that like thinks about this stuff all the time. And it was so cute that his wife was like, save me from my husband. <laughs> I kept thinking of uh, like when we have vacation in the summer and so Josh will take a couple weeks off at a time. Like because there was that moment where um, where the politician's wife, she said uh, or no, he said to her, you know, I like helping around the house here. And um, she just looks so exhausted and with him. And I kept thinking of like when when Josh is like a couple weeks off and I'm like trying to like rearrange furniture and he'll come in and be all, I think this should go here and I think this should do this. And I'm like, when are you going back to work, dude? Like, I need you to have less than an opinion. You know what I mean? Like, that's, that was totally all I could think of. Like, this is what retirement looks like. <laughs> does he do that in his cargo shorts? <laughs> he does. <laughs> He does, yes, proudly. The other thing that I thought was really on a on a on a funnier and more serious note. Did you guys see the Black Jeopardy Saturday Night Live skit? Mm -hmm. Yes, where Tom Hanks was Doug. This is Black Jeopardy. Yeah, what up? What up? What up? What up? Welcome to Black Jeopardy, the only TV game show where the audience is in church clothes. <laughs> I'm your host, Darnell Hayes. Our contestants are Keely. Hey. Shanice. Okay, now. And Doug. How are you doing, sir? Oh, hey. <laughs> Doug, you sure you're ready to play Black Jeopardy? They told me a fella can win some money, so let's win me some money. Get her done. 
You know, Black Jeopardy, they're asking these questions that are stereotypically things that, you know, African-Americans would know from firsthand experience. And a lot of whites wouldn't. And Doug is wearing a Make America Great Again. And they're saying. (laughs) Okay, let's go to they out here saying for eight. Okay, the answer there. They out here saying that every vote counts. Oh, Doug again. What is, come on, they already decided who wins even before it happens. Yes! 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 And the Illuminati figured that out months ago. That's another one for Doug. Okay, we're, uh, we're doing it. Let's try, uh, they out here saying for sure. <laughs> I mean, I, I thought the beauty of it, and the tragedy maybe, is that you have all these identity politics, but at the end of the day, you have this guy who's the stereotypical Trump voter that is being left behind by the global economy. And he has many of the same anxieties, many of the same, which are triggered by the system working against him, by income inequality stuff. And so he's like living in a very similar world to folks who are African-American and the system's not working for them. And, and, and as much as they're pitted against each other in media and in reality, that there's such a common human condition. I thought was very interesting. I don't just, I don't know what to say about that. I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I feel qualified to comment. I mean, I do think there's, there's some commentary about who you, is that cause you're white? Yeah, maybe. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, there's something about who you trust to come solve your problems. You know, like I, I have thought about with that with with sort of the election right now is like, do you, you know, there's a lot of things going on, you know, globalism versus nationalism or whatever. The big one is who do you who do you trust to solve your problems? Do you trust the government? Do you trust private enterprise? Do you trust yourself? Do you trust? I don't know. Where, where do you where do you put your where do you put your faith? So um, anyway. I don't know. I, I did. I thought it was funny, but I, but I also think like the social commentary around it right now has, has got, I don't know. It's, it's interesting. You know, Huffington Post is like, this is the most astute piece of political satire of the year. And then other people are like, give me a break. So I don't know, just something else to fight about, which is, uh, yeah. what, what, what we need this year. I'm trying to trust sucky Santa, 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 Sally <laughs> or whatever. Right. <laughs> Every time I see that cheese take out, I'm like, shoot, what is, what is, who is this guy? So on from politics to church, you know, we, we're helping you for your cocktail party and dinner conversation for the weekend. <laughs> little politics now, a little religiosity. <laughs> <laughs> So that she can offend everyone. Exactly. There's this piece in the Atlantic that says that basically it's women by and large that are taking the family to church. And the title of which is it's the moms who get kids to church, which I just paraphrased very well. The the subtitle is a new study suggests women are the primary models for religious faith in many households. And it goes on again to say that, that, just demographically, religion tends to be more important to women than men, and that basically women are getting more of the benefits to as well from religious observance, which perform, which gives people comfort, social cohesion, things, social ca- some people call it social capital, uh, and they're getting it more than men. So once again, the society is stacked against men, Sarah. You know, like, I don't care if you're making seventy cents to, to the dollar. <laughs> It's against the system is rigged against us. Sarah, are you the model for religious faith in your household? You know, I am. Um, <laughs> no, only only in that. So all I could think of is I, I was at a Bible study recently. Josh isn't going to be a model for anything if he doesn't get rid of those cargo shorts. Well, he's he's at church all day, right? Like he's too busy to like model anything like he's up there doing church. Um, I was at a Bible study recently where some of the women were talking about how frustrated they were that their husbands don't like 
that there's this whole right there's this whole narrative in Christianity that husbands are the spiritual head of the household and so that they and their husbands aren't fulfilling that requirement and I'm kind of like you know even though my husband's clergy like he doesn't either like he's too busy all the time like that's kind that falls on to me I think that's okay I mean I don't know I come from like so many women who were like this the the ones who made sure everybody got to church the ones who made sure everybody was present and so I, I mean I, I read this and it was like yeah totally i totally agreed with us rj are you the model are you the are you the religious model in your house and and do you wear cargo shorts i do not wear cargo shorts <laughs> man <laughs> after my own not. heart absolutely not my first reaction was like duh you know it's kind of a captain obvious thing that that that, that seems it seems like a very obvious obvious observation um that that women are the ones getting the kids to church. Um, I had a few more thoughts. I mean, one was I thought about Judaism, you know, where, you know, Jew, Jew, uh, Jewish lineage is passed down matrilineally. And mm-hmm. I was like, that now that kind of makes sense to me, you know, that you're Jewish if your mom was Jewish. It's not passed down to the father, but the mother. But then my next thought was, and the article touched on this a little bit, is what does masculinity look like in, in Christianity? I, I think... And we haven't quite figured that out, you know, how, how to sort of mesh those things. And I thought about, this is kind of a random thing. Do you guys see that, um, like, Robert Zemeckis uh, CGI Beowulf from, like, 10 or 15 years ago with Angelina Jolie? Oh, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's actually pretty good. Uh, but mm-hmm. there's, one, there's one moment in it where um, Beowulf, I think things are not going so well for him at that particular moment. And he says something, he says something like... Uh, all my heroes were killed by your Christ God. Mm-hmm. And I actually found that to be very profound, that like this, this traditional, violent, uh, sort of powerful Nietzschean, ubermensch view of masculinity was totally done in by Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, and that the, the, this, this, there needs to be some sort of vision of masculinity that has more to do with self-sacrifice as opposed to violence. Um, and so I think that's an open question, you know, and we had that whole like wild at heart, like, like, I don't want to talk about that. Remember that Don Eldridge, you guys remember that? Yeah. 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 Yeah, If there are any evangelicals listening who were around 10, 15 years ago, you may remember the sort of, you know, trying to recapture masculinity, but I think it's an open question. Like, what does it, what does, what does it look like to be, to be a, a, a Christian man? Um, I don't know. I have some other thoughts on that, but I've been ranting for a sec. What, what do you, what do you guys think about, think about that? I think if you're looking for a picture of what Christian masculinity looks like, like I have an Instagram and I do post a lot of things on Facebook. So you could just look at several pictures. I mean, I am halfway through the push up app and things like that. So, and, and I have a sensitive side. I like romantic comedies, things like that. Fashion. <laughs> <laughs> Horn rim glasses. I, our son recently, um, who's in kindergarten asked to be an usher at, um, at our church. And that felt, I mean, that, and that felt like such a victory for me because, well, first of all, cause his dad is, you know, should be his like de facto example. And he can't be a priest at five years old. Right. Nor do I want him to be a priest at 35 years old. Frankly, um, I would rather him find something else. So he, but he looked at the ushers who are mostly men and they're, they're dressed. They're the most nicely dressed men, right? They're in ties and suit and everything. And he was like, that's, that's, I see myself in that. And, um, I don't know that. I mean, I don't know that that's like an answer for masculinity, be an usher, but, but there is something about for, for our son that was like, I can, I see my place there. You know what I mean? Like I see other men doing that. That was, I can ush. Um, pretty maybe actually he calls it rushering cause he can't quite understand. Rush, nice. He's like, I've that's got a awesome. rusher today. I'm like, all right. I love that. Yeah. But they, they, he'll get there. I don't know how to put a tie on him. 
and his dad's always gone in the morning. So we'll bring his tie and one of the ushers will like help him put his tie on. And it's, it's pretty amazing. So I never feel more like a gentleman than when I tie my bow tie and put on my tuxedo. And then, cause then at the end of the night, you can untie it to show everyone you don't have a clip on on and you look like Tony Bennett, like at the end of the night, you know, just <laughs> untied and relaxed and loose. Yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting you said the Nietzsche thing. And I, I, I think of Nietzsche as sort of, I think a lot of it we think is like masculinity. Nietzsche would just think that's like the herd. It's bad. Uh, in the sense of it's just like for him, I mean, you want to see Nietzschean philosophy, watch Little Miss Sunshine. I mean, you read the gay science and like yeah. free, free spiritedness. So maybe we could use a little true Nietzscheanism. Well, that that was another thought that I had. And I, I again, being a guy, I'm always a little sensitive talking about kind of, I don't know, gender identity politics or whatever but um, that being said let me white guy dutch name let me forge ahead you know when we had so we have three boys now and uh i remember when we were our kids were little we're living in new york city and i would take my boys um, to central park you know because we didn't have a yard and we would go rock climbing and we'd go to the playground and finally my wife was like and my wife is very um you know, athletic, sort of tomboy, whatever. But she's like, RJ, I can't come with you to the playground or the park anymore. And I'm like, why not? She's like, because you let the boys take so many risks, you know? Uh-huh. She's like, I'm happy to clean up the blood. I just can't watch it happen. And, and that's something I've, I have noticed is that, and again, this is a gross rank generalization, but in general, um, I've sort of made a joke that like, and this is, this is terrible, but, but moms exist to sort of make sure that their kids stay alive. Mm. And dads exist to sort of make sure that they like have some, have fun, you know? Mm-hmm. And again, that's that's a terrible thing to say, but but that there is something that's more comfortable with risk taking, maybe about about dads or something, and maybe that's the tie to to Christianity. That if you're looking for safety, nurture, unconditional love, things like that, maybe that's more stereotypically. I hate to use these words, feminine. Whereas you know, there is something about Christianity that's incredibly risky. Mm-hmm. Sarah, feel free to you know come back at me as much as you want and all that. But by the way, all you, all you need to, all you need for the trifecta to RJ as the white Dutch male is to say you people. Like if we can get a you oh, people. Oh my here. God. That's right. This will be my first and last podcast ever. I hate to say this, but, um, but you people. <laughs> or the right. women. Perfect. You could say the women. No, Both I love perfect. what you said about uh, you and Jamie in the playground. We kind of talked about some of this stuff last week, so it's interesting to get y'all's perspective. When Josh and I are out and we see like kids doing something crazy or like eating like a donut at like, you know, 7 a.m. or whatever, we'll just look at each other and be like, dad's in charge, you know? There you go. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Once again, it's the stereotype hour here on the Mockingcast, <laughs> reinforcing traditional stereotypes in your neighborhood and mine. You're welcome. I know. It's terrible. It's terrible. One last thought. It's interesting. We talked in June about an article from the New York Times called The Bad Faith of the White Working Class. It was written by Jeremiah Vance, who grew up in a poor community, in, I think somewhere in Appalachia area. And he was talking about how a lot of working class white evangelicals who identify as something like conservative Christian, but have no connection to church or institutional religious life. And he's talking about all the benefits of that. But then I also got thinking like, well, it's also could be the benefits of the law in the sense of, you know, how do most people socialize their kids? Don't lie. Why? Well, because people don't like liars or because we're not the kind of people that lie. So fear and shame. And so, so fear and shame are so much of how we nurture and socialize. So just a caveat, maybe sometimes getting, you know, just getting people to church while it might make them productive citizens might inoculate them against the gospel. Amen. Amen.
on to meritocracy and lying. There we have a piece that w- also appears in the Atlantic. We should get like sponsorship money from right? Atlantic. Why don't they sponsor this podcast? Album corner that you know the the mockingbird segment of the population. Exactly, which is ever burgeoning. huge, yes. ever ever burgeoning. <laughs> You people are helping the Atlantic out. <laughs> oh, gee. <laughs> there you go. Appropriate. I like it. Living in extreme meritocracy is exhausting. A society that glorifies metrics leaves little room for human imperfections. And talks about how a century ago, a man named Frederick Winslow Taylor, who I just call FWT, changed the way workers work in his book, The Principles of Scientific Management. Taylor makes the case that companies need to be more pragmatic and methodical in their effort to boost productivity by observing employees' performance and whittling down time and effort in doing each task. He argued management can ensure that their workers shoveled or inspected bicycle bearings or uh, did other crude elementary work as efficiently as possible. Soldiering, a common term in the day for manual laborers, loafing would no longer be possible under the rigors of the new system. And he just talks about how based Peter Drucker called him the Isaac Newton of the science of work. And like... Uh, Taylor predicted this now is not just this kind of rigid mathematical metricing is not just part of workplace culture, but is invaded every area of our lives, whether it's parenting or dating or, you know, your appearance or, or recreation. How much fun am I having? How healthy am I? I've got my Fitbit. I'm counting my steps. Am I, am I walking? Am I walking enough? Am I, did I hit my goal? And so basically the article asks, do we really want to live in a meritocracy that, 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 or at least in a, in a, in a culture where everything is a meritocracy and do these kind of hardcore black and white metrics really miss a lot that's gray and, 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 you know, how do you, you can't measure human value all the time with, with rigid metrics and, you know, evidence-based things and, and what have you. Now, you all are, are both at a church that's got more clergy than any, than, uh, it's like than the Vatican. Just like the Vatican. <laughs> the Vatican. <laughs> you know, they have all these titles. There's, there's, uh, so is it meritocratic <laughs> down there at St. Martin's? Well, I'll say, I think Houston is pretty meritocratic. And, and, I, and I think, I don't know, in the best sense, maybe, um, you know, there's the, the head of the upper school at my older son's school, who I actually knew in New York, and then she spent some time in North Carolina, and now she's in Houston that she felt like this was the most meritocratic city she'd ever lived in. And she meant it in the best sense. Um, and it actually makes me think also of, you know, there's a lot of people down here who used to work for Enron. Um, and I, you know, when I first found that, I was like, wow, what was that like, Enron? And, and like to a person, they all said that Enron was actually the best place they ever worked because it was so meritocratic. And in, in, again, in the best sense, because it didn't matter what your last name was or where you went to school or who you knew um, or what you looked like. If you showed up, you did the work, you worked hard, it, it was going to go well for you. And I, I understand this extreme meritocracy thing, which just makes me want to take a nap. Um, but my first reaction to that article is like, what's the alternative? You know, that we do, you know, um, that, you know, you know, we, we have to deal with reality and on the ground. It's like, you know, what did Churchill say? Democracy is the worst form of government, except for every other form that's ever been invented. So the extreme meritocracy, the constant checkups and grade, you know, grading is just exhausting. Uh, but at the same time, I don't know, some level of meritocracy has to, there has to be something, doesn't there? I, I don't know. Well, I kept reading this and thinking of the church. I mean, I, I kept reading this and thinking of specifically like when we lived in New York and how many small churches there were like in the city. RJ, you may know this this bishop's name. I can't remember. It was like 100 years ago and he or 150 years ago. And his whole thing was that like he wanted an Episcopal church like every two city blocks or something. So there's just which is why there's so 
he just about got it. Yeah, which is why there's so many visible churches. And, you know, a lot of them, and actually to, to, an, to an earlier article's point, a lot of them are full of women, of elderly women who are mm-hmm. running those churches mm-hmm. and making them happen, right? Um, they're not the priests, but I mean, they're, they're lay women. And, um, you know, that they're... He's kind of like Jesus' ministry. He was bankrolled by women. Yeah. Exactly. You know, the gospels um, are pretty clear. Anyway, seriously. But like, but like that there, you know, there's this, all this anxiety because there's just not enough of them, right? There's all this like numbers conversation and are we going to close and are we not going to close? And, um, and we're, so, I mean, we're so focused on numbers culturally and we're specifically so focused on numbers in the church and in the Episcopal church. It's kind of a depressing picture if you look too closely, um, that it, it seemed like they could completely forget that they were a faithful community, right? They could completely lose sight of that. So I think for me, that was what I kept thinking of when I was reading this, just this sort of numbers over relationships, numbers over people thing that we can pretty easily fall into. Uh, It's interesting. I just think the the conclusion of the article is really interesting, where The Atlantic, this is not like a a religious publication, a norm of constant performance reviews focuses people's energies not on structural reforms, but on the ups and downs of their individual ratings, scores, and talents. It turns some into modern-day Pharisees expecting perfection, despising failure, excusing nothing, and deepens the despair of those they scorn. You can't make no mistakes, one of the unemployed workers I interviewed told me. You got to do everything perfect. You can't get into trouble. You can't do nothing. You got nobody to run to. In the final accounting, this unbalanced culture serves no one. Not the ambitious corporate employees employees stifling his empathy in order to clamor over coworkers. And certainly not the unemployed worker ostracized by a society that judges her to be a failure. But doing something about this will demand more than a technical solution. It will require challenge, challenging deep-rooted notions of what success is and more leverage on the side of workers, as well as perhaps a measure of grace. So I can't say it any better than that. on and speaking of science in the washington post there's great piece called lying once makes the second and third time easier and the first paragraph poor pinocchio he never had a chance a new study in nature neuroscience which that's my beach reading confirms the reason for the puppet's (laughs) ever-growing proboscis it probably actually is the more we practice (laughs) prevarication i wish it was the more i'm lying right now the more to make myself look better. The more we practice prevarication, the easier it gets. And it goes on to, which again, this probably is, there's a, I love when neuroscience tells us something that like everybody knows intuitively, but to, to be true, but they, they actually like found. power poses. You, yeah, exactly. They did these experiments where they asked people questions. It gets easier. Once you are dishonest, it gets easier to become more and more dishonest. But here's the question to both of you, which is, you read the article, so it's unfair, but lying or honesty, can you guess which is associated with higher intelligence? It's the lying. No, it's the honesty. The article said the honesty. I thought you read the article. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! Who didn't do their homework? I yeah, did. I skimmed right. it. I skimmed it. Miss Condit, can you come, can you come to, this is like when, when in The Simpsons, Bart, do you know complex <laughs> fractions? I know of them. <laughs> I don't know. Aren't aren't we in the, having the last five years or so been really unkind to neuroscience? Mm. You know, studies like aren't we at the point we sort of get? Because I, I love neuroscience. You know, I, I love these studies. I I love the sort of 
you know, counterintuitive or, or in this case, actually totally intuitive thinking. But I don't know. I mean, having having lied myself on numerous occasions, um, I also kind of find the converse is true that at some point, the psychic weight of a consistent lie that builds upon itself just isn't worth it anymore. Mm. You know, that at some point you have to like, you're like, okay, I just, I can't do, I can't do this anymore. I have to, I have to tell the truth or I'm going to kind of go crazy. So I'd be interested to see studies on that. Like, is, is there a, is there a law of diminishing returns where the, the shame and the guilt isn't worth the benefit? In the article, they say the question of whether these smarter people were really more moral went unsettled. Perhaps those who were more intelligent saw through the experiment realized it was a setup and chose to answer honestly because of concerns about self-image, or perhaps the smarter a person is, the better able they are to assess the potential negative consequences of lying, even with a short-term gain. Then they say a central question at the core of these experiments is one that has engaged moral philosophers for millennia. Are human beings predisposed to tell the truth? There are two competing theories about the nature of honesty. The grace theory holds that truth-telling is innate and arises from a lack of temptation. The will theory, on the other hand, holds that truth-telling depends on a person's ability to resist temptation. Well, as somebody who is unintelligent and immoral, um, all I can think of is I was... <laughs> Only one of those things is true. I'll let our readers figure out which, which is... <laughs> unintelligent and immoral. <laughs> Um, all I could think of was Santa Claus. I don't know how you guys have managed Santa Claus at the Heyman household, but, um, we, the first year that we, like, Neil understood what Santa Claus was, he's probably two or three years old, I felt so terrible, like, the whole season, because I was just lying to him, right? Well, Santa Claus is gonna come, and he's got reindeer, and na 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 and now it's so like we're a couple years in and it's just become more and more elaborate and it's easier but like the weight is heavier of it like you know he he told us the other day that he was going to ask for a trampoline which like we're not going to buy and he's like well i'm just going to bypass you and dad and talk to santa claus and i was like well santa claus checks with parents before he gets dangerous toys like i'm just like it's just getting worse and worse you know and easier and easier so one of the best books i've read in years is by a retired princeton university philosopher by her name harry frankfurt called on bullshit and it's amazing and this is the best this is writing this is an opening to a book one of the most salient features of our culture is that there is so much bullshit everyone knows this each of us contributes a share but we tend to take the situation for granted most people are rather confident of their ability to recognize bullshit and to avoid being taken by it so the phenomena has not aroused much deliberate concern or attracted much sustained inquiry. And the next 80 pages are his. He starts the Oxford English Dictionary, does the etymology, and basically says BSing is basically a purposeful misrepresentation. And he says the, the, the bullshitter is morally inferior to the liar because the liar at least has to know the truth to avoid it. Whereas the person that's BSing is just, they're just whatever. They're just trying to talk to talk and, and kind of look like they know what they're talking about. But he wrote a follow-up book called On the Truth, which is, I mean, they're both phenomenal books. And On the Truth, he talks about why lying is so painful, creates loneliness. He says the loneliness is precisely unutterable because the liar cannot reveal that he is lonely, that there is no one in his fabricated world without disclosing and doing so that he has lied. He hides his own thoughts, pretending to believe what he does not believe, and thereby he makes it impossible for other people to be fully in touch with him. They cannot respond to him as he really is. They cannot even be aware that they are not 
doing so. The liar refuses to permit himself to the extent that he lies to be known. Totally. That's just amazing because I think that, you know, the most tragic words in the Bible maybe early on in Genesis when after eating the forbidden fruit, they hear the leaves rustling and it's they heard God and they hid. And so every sort of deception is like, it seems like it's a reenactment of our, the primal spiritual ancestors and they're covering up. How do you, are you guys feeling particularly anxious today? <laughs> no. That's good for you, RJ. Oh, good for you. Yeah, no, I'm... This is, this is me every, this is me every day, Scott. <laughs> good for you. I'm always anxious. David Brooks wrote a great piece. It appeared on the 25th in the opinion pages of the New York Times. It's called The Epidemic of Worry. And he, he's, we talked about this actually last week, maybe, about how most Americans say this election is giving them incredible levels of anxiety. And then he just talks about, he talks about a book by Francis Gorman called Worrying and how the, he se- it seems like our election anxiety is just mere, a mirror for, uh, or like it's the tip of the iceberg, uh, you know, the, re- the, the bottom of which is the chronic anxiety. It seems like just exists at such high levels. It, such in, in such wide-reaching amounts all across our culture. It's a really interesting piece. I agree, and I, I, you know, as someone who does worry and battles that, uh, and I don't know if I'm just talking because I because I am a Christian, but I guess my initial reaction is if you don't believe in a benevolent God who sort of actually is in control of things and actually does care about you, what other option do you have right. except just to worry about things all the time? Like if you really think that your life, your future, your children, your career, your what your well is all up to you, like man, oh man, that's just going to destroy you. Um, so yeah, it makes perfect sense to me. And it, as I said before, that's why like when Jesus says, do not worry, which used to was like, how dare you say that? How dare you command me not to worry? Now I'm just like, oh my God, mm-hmm. thank you. Thank you for giving me permission to not worry because you, you know, because you, you'll take care of tomorrow and I don't, I don't need to sweat it quite so much. Yeah. Um, Mark Babico was just here, uh, to do interviews for the, um, for a video for Mockingbird's 10th anniversary. And we were talking about sort of why we come back to Mockingbird like every year because we're saying the same thing, right? Like every year. I mean, we're saying the same thing. But the thing is like, I have to be reminded of it because I function on anxiety. That's kind of like my life's like sustenance for better or for worse, mostly for worse. And so I actually need to hear that I can take rest and I need to hear Jesus say, uh, do not worry. I I need to hear that on repeat because I, I think anxiety is everyone's default now. Um, yeah. It's interesting. Stanley Harawas says, Christians don't have to make history come out right. History came out right in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I think I was thinking about that when... Not every podcast gets a Stanley Harawas impersonation. I just... (laughs) They're coming more and more. (laughs) No. Um, Brooks quoting Gorman, the author of Worrying, says that the worry... Like drama is all about the self. As Gorman puts it, the, the, the chronic worrier 
doesn't give out energy for the benefit of others. He absorbs energy at others' costs. And I was thinking about oh, man. The, the Prince of Peace absorbing the cost of our anxiety. And so that's mm. the, where there comes the freedom to, in our anxious and non-anxious moments, to have the gift to know that somehow in the, it will all, I'm a pan-millennialist, it'll all, by God's grace, pan out in the end. Thank you, my friends, for being with me this week. RJ, great job thank you for for the first time i appreciate that thanks for having me it's been fun and sarah as always you are Mm, inimitable thanks friend bye bye now thanks for listening to the Mockingcast. as always you can find any of the content we reference on our website mbird.com the Mockingcast is produced by yours truly scott jones ably assisted by my associate producer david peterson if you like what you heard please cruise on over to itunes 